Well, I am Pastor Brent, family pastor here, and I am just excited to be able to come here. Nate asked me to speak, and so here I am. We're going to continue this morning in the book of Ephesians. We've been going through the whole book as a series, as a teaching series, and if you've missed it, you can go online and <clears throat> catch up, but you may have realized, maybe you didn't, that we skipped over a chapter in Ephesians. We've been going chapter by chapter, and some of you are nodding your heads like, I was wondering what happened. Well, it's because I'm speaking on it today. So um, <clears throat> we're going to look at chapter two is what we skipped over. And um, all throughout the book, uh, Pastor Nate has been talking to us about Ephesians and how it's a letter that was written to people named Ephesians because simply they lived in a city called Ephesus. All right, so we call it a book, we call it a letter, it's kind of both. It is long, it is a long letter, so I guess I could, you could call it a book. Um, in, this, in this book, though, we're hearing that there's some things happening to the church at Ephesus, and they're experiencing hardships, they're experiencing circumstances that don't always make them feel happy, um, and they're wondering what life is supposed to look like. And so... Uh, we've looked, Nate has looked at some of what Ephesians has been talking about and in regards to transformation in our life and what that is to look like um, because of what Jesus has done for us. Today, though, we're rewinding back to chapter 2, and we're going to focus on something that I would consider the foundation of, of life transformation, okay? Um, it's, the found, it's so much a foundation that this part that we're going to look at today, theologians use these verses to combat against wrong thinking, misdirected thinking, uh, the misuse of scripture, even cults. And so this is a great passage of scripture that we're going to look at. We're going to look at just 10 verses, verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2, okay? And these 10 verses theologians say, are Paul flexing his, his theological muscle, so to speak, okay? So he is going to take Romans chapters 1 through 8. Romans is a letter that was written to Rome. He's going to take chapters 1 through 8 and condense it into 10 verses that we're going to read about here today. So what we're reading is truly the doctrine or what Christianity is all about. So if you came here today and you're wondering, what is this whole Christian thing? What is, what is this belief about? You came to the right day, because we're going to talk about it today, all right? Um, you can also take these 10 verses and hold them up to teaching that you might hear in the world and use them as kind of a, a test to say, is this teaching actually accurate that I'm hearing? So I would encourage you, if, if there's any place in the Bible to memorize, it's these 10 verses, all right? And you're going to see why here. So turn with me to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It'll be up on the screen. We're going to read from the New International Version. And my, my translation might be a little older than what's on the screen uh, for the New International Version, but um, we'll read through this together. And then I'm going to tell you a story that kind of represents a little bit of what Paul's saying here. He says, starts out, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, 
when you follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let me ask you a question real quick. Raise a hands. Have any of you ever been on the brink of death? I'm going to raise my hand because I have. I'll tell you the story here in a moment. Whoa, quite a few of you. Okay. So, like, this could include car wrecks, could, could include medical issues, all kinds of different things. Okay? So, quite a few in this room, actually. Um, service before Thursday, not very many. So, um, years ago, I, when I was 18, I began having stomach pains. And I went in to see the doctor who looked at me and at that time, my huge rippling abs. Now, now they've kind of dropped into one, okay? But it was abs plural, okay? Um, and he looked at these abs and he diagnosed me as having sore muscles from exercise. Three weeks later, the pain came back, this time in huge waves. It felt like something was wrong inside of me. So my parents started trying all these different things, and they gave me Pepto. Anybody hate Pepto? My wife's going to raise her hand, okay? Um, <clears throat> Tums. They even gave me mineral oil, which I highly recommend not. It is the worst, okay? But nothing seemed to work, and I remember lurching out of the bathroom and hobbling over to the back of a couch in the living room, and I remember white-knuckling that couch and looking at my mom and saying through gritted teeth, if we don't go to the hospital right now, I'm going to die. What do you think a mom says? We're going. <laughs> right, moms? We're going. You, your kid doesn't normally say that. So um, once there, the doctor started prodding and poking, inserting things in places I didn't know I had. Um, giving me radioactive stuff that burned. Um, they tried everything that they could to find out what was wrong, but they couldn't find out what was wrong. And finally, the doctor took me and my parents into a little side room, and I was in serious pain. And <clears throat> he said, he sat down and he said, I'm thinking about just going in. Just go in, I screamed. Just go in. I'm going in. <laughs> okay. So they hooked me up and, uh, and put me into a hospital bed. And before you know it, um, I awoke. 
still in that hospital bed, unable to move. And a male nurse came over to me and said something about a button and said, push this every five minutes for pain. And I thought, I'm coming out of morphine, okay? Just bear with me. How in the world am I supposed to know when five minutes are? I don't have a clock. So I'm pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. <laughs> he comes back in. Oh my, he gasped. We're going to have to put you on auto feed. And then I realized, push this every five minutes if you have pain. Oh man. So after that, it took me a week to recover from the, the surgery and uh, the morphine probably as well. Um, I had dropped 140 pounds, my strength was all but gone, all because of a little thing called an appendix that had exploded, releasing poison into my body. Like I said, I knew something was wrong inside of me, and sure enough, there was something wrong. There was something inside of me that was dying. Slowly, I regained my strength, and then I was finally able to return home. Paul here in chapter 2 begins in Ephesians with a very similar story. In these first three verses, he's talking about death, but not just any death, like a physical death, um, or even something inside of us physically that's, that's wrong. He's actually talking about something even more deep. He's talking about spiritual death. So read with me in verse one, and we're gonna take this apart as we go along. But in verse 1, he says, as for you, so he's making a comparison. He just finished talking about Jesus, who was right, didn't sin, and got through the cross and was raised and resurrected. But as for you, okay, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He's reminding the church here of where they used to be, he's using past tense, and he's saying, you were in sin or transgressions. This he's talking about is disobedience to God, disobedience to his law, his Ten Commandments, the things that he wants for us. Paul is saying here that, that when we are sinful, read on, um, our only payment is death. Remember, he's talking to these, this church here. He's using past tense. He's saying, you were there, okay? So he's reminding them of where they used to be, as I'm reminding some of you as we read this verse t today, of where we used to be. That's his audience, okay? Spiritually speaking. But then he's going to go on to unpack what he says in verse 2, because the sentence isn't done. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He says there, you used to live. If you missed last week, last week Nate was talking about wisdom. And wisdom isn't just making one wise choice, he said. It's actually living wise. It's living in wisdom. Paul here is talking about something almost the exact opposite. He's saying sin isn't just one wrong choice. 
It is the way of living. It's the pattern that you're in, right? He's saying this is a series of the how you're going about who you are. And he's saying here, um, he's saying here that it's pervading us in our behavior, our motivation, our emotion, even our very thought. Then he's going to list three things. Anybody like bullet points? Paul's going to bullet point some of us. Okay, he's going to bullet point here three different things that are what I would call that encourage sin or you could call them, it'd be fancy, a purveyor of sin. Okay, something that, that encourages it and brings it about. The first source here is in, um, in verse 2. He says, the ways of the world, the ways of the world. This is the very patterns of behavior and thought surrounding us. Okay, generally speaking, you can say the world is filled with sin. This is that social aspect of sin that encourages us to do it. So it's kind of like if I was an alcoholic and I was a recovering alcoholic, one day I said to myself, self, you're good enough to go and hang out with your old friends at the bar. Yes. So I go to the bar and I sit down and there's all these buddies of mine, and they're drinking, and they start saying what to me? Just, just do one. Just do one. It's okay. It's okay. You, you, because they may be feeling bad, too, because I'm not drinking. And so they are giving that peer pressure to do that. This is what Paul's saying. There's this social aspect of sin that is so rampant, it is the world's thinking it's that world peer pressure. The second uh, purveyor of sin, the second encourager of sin is in verse 2. He says, And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The ruler of the kingdom of the air. We're talking about Satan. Don't think for a moment he isn't real. He is still around, and he still is attempting to tempt us into sin. But why would Paul call him the ruler of the kingdom of the air? Well, simply, there's an old Jewish tradition that says just that, that that is his dominion, is the air. But aside from all of that, even, even regarding that, Paul is saying something potentially even more deeper than this, He's saying that the very breath that you breathe has been tainted and stolen from you. Spiritually speaking, you could make the connection potentially with Adam, the first time breath was ever even mentioned in the Bible. It says that God gave the very, his very breath to Adam. He breathed it in and brought life so there's not only great peer pressure, but that very source of life, breath, is gone. So about a year and a half ago, I went to visit some youth at their lunch, at their lunch break. And I go, and, I, and they're like, Brent, Pastor Brent, let's play some basketball. I was like, yeah. Back in my head, there was this little voice saying, man, it's been like 10 years. And they were like, hey, do you know how to play? And I was like, yeah, I played in college. Whoa! So they stacked the teams against me. 11th and 12th graders on the other team 
and me with some fifth and sixth graders. Challenge accepted. So I start playing basketball, and then I remember, oh shoot, here it comes. My exercise-induced asthma. And I don't carry an inhaler. It's asthma that kicks on and gets worse as I exercise. And so the more I try and the more I push myself, the more I try to beat those 11th and 12th graders to show them how good I am, the less breath I have. And that's kind of what we're talking about here, isn't it? Spiritually speaking, the more we try as humans and try to do it on our own and push forward, it seems like our breath is just stolen from us. Why is it that I want to do what is good, but I seem to not be able to do what is right and good? Ah, it's hard. Both of these, these things are external that Paul has said. Now he's going to go to a more serious problem. Okay? In verse 3, he moves to the internal. He says in verse 3, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Our very nature, or our flesh, is, is a push for sin he says this nature here, he's saying it's made up of two very core parts of who we are. Our desires or our emotions, our passions, okay, and our thoughts. Man, I'm telling you, if, if that is true, what hope is there for us as humanity? I mean, Paul has made a very convincing argument that we are in a bad plight, He's saying here at verse the beginning, look at him, he says, all, all of us sin. We're all there. He's saying, wow, like we're in a difficult spot, but I want to stay here. I want to move on because there's something awesome in verse four. Look at this. My favorite, favorite right here. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, Sentence isn't done yet, but did you catch it? Some translations put it this way. But God. But God. Look at the first verse. As for you, now he's making a contrast. That contrast word, contrasting you and me with God. It's not verse one, as for you, and then going to verse four and saying, but you again. He's actually helping us, Paul is, to move our, our thoughts where they really need to be off of ourself and onto God. And because it's about God. And that is that beginning of freedom when we realize it's not about me, it's about what God wants to do. So, where are we at? Verse 4. Paul's gearing up to contrast a few different things. Let me, let me bullet point them for you. Death and life, you and God, a non-believer and, and a believer, being under Satan and being a citizen of heaven, God's judgment and God's mercy. He goes on in verse five. God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead 
and transgressions is by grace you have been saved. Paul is now going to bullet point again three different things. You ready? He's going to bullet point them. In uh, chapter 1, as I said, he's talked about Jesus dying on the cross. Now we're going to talk about what we have with Jesus. He's using here in these next two verses what you could call a poetic device. You can't catch it in the English, but if you look at the original Greek, he lists three words, and each one starts with the sound S, Y, or if you want to get real fancy, S, U with the two dots over it. What's those two dots called? Yes, German. So <laughs> you got it. All right. We've got some English people here. So, or German. Okay. So that sound, okay? And that sound, by the way, is where we get that, that word synergy in the English. One of these words is very close to that. Okay, so that sound is in, these, is, is in these three words. That sound carries with it a meaning in the Greek. It means together with. So Paul is saying that these three points we receive when we are together with Christ. So our first point from this verse is we are, when we are um, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're together with Christ. We are revived. Okay? So you see it there. He says we're alive. That word alive means revived or renewed or rejuvenated. Or one sixth grade boy from Thursday said, you know, I like to think of it as recreated because God is in the creation process. Right on, buddy. You got it. Okay? Strong's Concordance says reanimated. Ooh, that carries with it that idea of coming back to life from death, like some kind of corpse, right? So this is that contrast of death and life that he's making here. Going back to my story, as a doctor, you don't want your patient to die. You want your patient to live. And if they die, you're going to do all that you can to bring them back to life. This is the picture Paul is saying here. He's saying it's like a person through Jesus receiving electroshock therapy to restart their heart. A person gasping in their first breath, their eyes for the first time glistening again with life, restored. The heart, no longer hard and still, but instead, soft, pliable, willing to do its work. With this imagery, you can see that we too are in need of reviving. Think about what you've been through in your life. Some of the things that have happened are because of our choices and the consequences of those choices those sinful choices. The people that we've hurt or we've been hurt from the sin of other people and regret fills us, shame, and it tends to lead us back into sin. It pervades us to the very core. 
Paul is saying there's reviving available to you and to me. And some of you hearing this might be your first time hearing it, maybe not. And if this is your first time, maybe there's a spark, a spark of hope. God is saying, this gift is yours. Will you believe? Paul then throws out a reminder at the end of this verse. He says, it is by grace you've been saved. This is salvation. It's a reviving. It's a gift. Nothing that you can do, it comes from God. He wants to talk about this more, but it's like he jumps ahead of himself. He's like, I just want you to know. It's by grace you've been saved. He throws it out there. Verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is our second point here, point two that Paul is making. Together with Christ, we are raised. We are raised. Now it's peculiar that Paul, to me it's peculiar, being growing up in the church, that he's making raised a second point aside from revived. I've always heard these as both the same. But when you think about it, he is making a differentiation. The first is like our breath being restored. The second is about our strength. Jesus didn't wake up in his tomb and lay there unable to do anything. Help! I'm alive! Somebody roll open the tomb, the door, get it open! He didn't. He got up. He walked. He moved around. Doctors didn't want me just to lie in that bed when I woke up. They wanted me to get stronger. They forced me to walk around with my little IV bag around the room and around the hospital. They wanted me to get my muscles back. The same goes spiritually for us who've been revived. You see, spiritually, if we keep on saying, well, I sin all the time, there's no way for me to stop. At least I have God's grace. I'm going to keep on doing these things I know God doesn't want. Because ultimately, that's because I really want to do them. If we say those things, we're deceiving ourselves. We're selling ourselves short. Instead, Paul is saying together with Christ, we have strength to rise, to walk with God, to, to jump to contribute to society, to others, to help others who may not know about him. We have the power to be raised. And look in that verse. Paul isn't saying you might have the power to be raised. He's talking in the past tense still. You have been raised. You've given the strength. Now go and live for God Today, verse 7, um, well, is it verse 7? Yeah, verse 6 at the end gives us our third point, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. 
And it's from that word seated. Um, this word seated, we can, we can then say together with Christ, we reign. Some of us need to hear this part today. Notice the verse is still in the past tense, meaning it's already happened. That you are seated. Well, I'm not really seated with God right now in heaven. Kind of doesn't make sense. Oh, but you are. You are. If you're thinking that, then you're still thinking physical. You've got to switch your mind to spiritual. Spiritually, you are seated right now with God in heaven. It's mind-blowing for me to think about. You are a citizen of heaven. Look, the doctors didn't want me just walking around their, their hospital forever, like, yeah, free food. They wanted me to go home. I didn't just wake up and say, I want to be here the rest of my life in this hospital. They wanted me, that I, I wanted to go home. And I think you want to go home as well, right? We have this eternal home, and we're already, we already are seated there with God. But see, this is the thing. We're not just that citizen of heaven. We reign with God in heaven. Heaven is our inheritance. You are made into royalty. And this is the freedom that you've been given. You're no longer a slave. To, you're no longer under the dominion of the prince of demons. You are God's. And he loves you dearly. We are honored by the host in heaven. Now, in these last four verses, what we've talked about the core of Christianity brings up some questions and Paul's going to answer three of those. In, chapters, in verse 7, it says, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in this kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The first question Paul here is answering is why? Why would God do this for me, for you? For humanity. We're so evil, so lost in sin. Why? Here's a simple answer. God's a show off. Yeah. <laughs> he wants to show off for, for all of eternity his riches, the riches of his grace, his kindness, his love for you. The second question is, how? You may not have this, and you want to know, how? How can I receive these three things we're talking about? How can I be together with Jesus? And Paul simply says in verses 8 and 9, it is by God. It is by God. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. You are already his beloved. There's nothing you can do to get to heaven. Did you know that? There's no action or certain things that you have to accrue. You don't have to do secret things that are, 
that are giving to people to help them just because you want to be good enough. Stop trying to be good enough for God. It's already done. This is what separates Jesus from religions in this world. The work is done, people. The real question is, do you believe this? Because it is your faith in Jesus that saves you. Now, Paul finishes by answering one more question. The question might be, if it's just belief that saves me, then I can do whatever I want, right? And there are cults right here in our peninsula that believe that. But according to Paul in verse 10, for we are created, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Your behaviors don't save you, but they follow your belief. If you believe in Jesus, that you are revived, raised, and reigned together with Christ, the result is that the very core of you is changed so that you and I, the you, is no longer in the way of doing good work. I leave you with this today. It's a creepy picture. Take a look at this. There's some creepy guy looking at a baby in the middle. This is just a sketch that was made, and I'm wondering, how much do you think this is worth? Any guesses? Shout them out. $400. Okay, this is like an auction. <laughs> Anybody else? Any other ideas? What's that? Billions? Okay, that would be a lot. Okay, so this work, if I told you the name, it's going to probably make you think it's worth more. It's called the Adoration of the Magi. So that creepy guy on the left is supposed to be a Magi. Mm. <laughs> creepy Magi. This work is worth three and a half million dollars. About 10 to 20 years ago, it was sold for three and a half million, so it's probably worth more than that now. Crazy, right? It's just a sketch on a piece of canvas. But you see, it's not the canvas or the paint that necessarily make this work so valuable. It's the artist. This is an unfinished work from Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, some of, I heard you, some of you say, ah, that makes sense. If this work is worth three and a half million dollars because of a dead painter, how much more is a canvas work, a canvas worth if it's painted on by the one living, true creator of the world, God. When you allow God to place his brushstrokes upon the canvas of your life, you are made invaluable. You are an invaluable masterpiece. That's the word Paul's using in verse 10. Handiwork, masterpiece. You may think yourself as you may feel incomplete or unworthy. You may have times where you feel unlovable or invaluable. But that doesn't change how God sees you. He sees you 
as a masterpiece. That's why he sent his only son, Jesus, to die for you. That's why he gave us these gifts, a reviving of who we are, a raising of strength, and a reign to you and I. Because he loves you. Do you believe this? I mean, believe it with your heart. This may spark something in you, and if it has, that's the seed of faith that God has put inside of you. He's hoping in you. Did you know that God hopes in you? He's hoping in you that you'll accept him fully into your life. Years ago, I worked alongside of a, a girl in a factory. It's a lot of rough characters, but she was one of them. She was a few years older than me. And we were in the packing department at a faucet factory. I made faucets. And as we're looking at faucets, I started talking to her about Jesus. Very similar story to this today. And I told her about how Jesus loves her and he died for her. I said, do you believe this? And she said, nope, I'm an atheist. Perplexed, I, I didn't know what to say. So at that time, I would just said, well, I just, I want you to go to heaven and have, have eternal life and not go to hell should you die. And her response was shocking, but filled with truth. She said, well, if I die and go to hell, it will be my own choice. I didn't know what to say, so all I said was just, yeah. That choice is before each of us today. The message of Jesus has been around for centuries. Some say it's just used by the church to, to make money or to manipulate the weak-minded. But honestly, I can stand here before you and say, that is not my motivation. Similar to years ago, my motivation is that you will have life to the full, both here on earth and in heaven. I want you to experience that. 